we agreed to do things that a lot of people wouldn't agree to. We were curious. I think we were just willing to take a chance. Like, we don't know if this is actually going to work, but why not? We, One of my favorite examples of that is we had a, a show booked at, I forget the name of it, if it's the Bug Jar in Rochester, New York. So Pango had booked the show. We were on the bill with Pango. And then they get in touch with us and they're like, look, you got the show first. We are going to honor that. But we have to be honest, DOA and the Dickies are playing, and this would be a really good show for us. And Pete and I were like, well, can we just open? So we didn't even set up, you know, we rarely set up on stage back then, and and we didn't set up on stage. We set up, I feel like we set up, like, in the, like, cafe, I mean, I, or, like, on the floor in front of the stage. Maybe 10 people actually watched us. It was a lot of older punks, and, you know, no one was there for us except for Pingo. But this one guy, and I forget the shirt. I wish I could remember the shirt. I mean, he's wearing like a, a clash shirt or something, you know, or subhumans. I forget. But he's an old, he was like an older punk who probably had seen DOA's first tour. And he comes running up to us and he's like, what, 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 what do you call that? I mean, do, what do you call that? I'm like, we, well, we call it noise. He's like, really? You call it, <laughs> really? You're not joking? You call it noise? I'm like, well, I mean, I think of it as punk. He's like, you do. Because it seemed like punk to me, but it wasn't punk. And he was so fucking excited. And I was just like, that's worth it. Hi, this is Jack Callahan, and you are listening to 400 Floor. You just heard from Gabriel Solomon Mendel, who also performs as Gabriel Solomon, or simply GMS, and Pete Swanson, who together are Yellow Swans. If you've been listening to this podcast, you might remember this from a previous episode with Nina founder Mike Pollard and John Elliott. At Marriage, there was something like on Not Not Fun, like a compilation maybe that had Yellow Swans. And then Yellow Swans was the gateway into basically everything else So the uh, thing, very quickly. That, that, that's so funny that you say that to me because I'm probably, I'm 38, you're what, 32? 33? 32, yeah. yeah. So people in your age group for whatever reason, it really seems like the Yellow Swans was the way in for those people. It was. It was an early. That was an early noise show for me. And then for and people, you know, the Shushu connection yeah. as well. Yeah. Like totally. And then for people my age, it seems like it's either Wolf Eyes or Nautical Almanac. It's one of those two. Yeah. And totally. for whatever reason, just a few people, like people just a little younger than me, it's always the Yellow Swans. Coming out of the highly esoteric West Coast underground of the late '90s. Gabriel and Pete bonded over their desire to bring together the sonic experimentation of noise music with the intensity and DIY ethos of hardcore punk. They rose to prominence due in no small part to their relentless tour schedule, always making sure to fit in smaller cities in the route often skipped by other bands. At the peak of their powers, they decided it was the best choice to take a hiatus. But just recently, they announced their first shows reunited as a duo, which are happening in a few weeks from the recording of this. It was a pleasure to get on the horn with Gabriel and Pete and learn about their history and friendship, and I think it's honestly a pretty enjoyable listen. This episode has been edited from the full conversation, which is available at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. This is 400 Floor. Let's go on and get into it. Okay, so I I just need to say something right out the gate, that um, Pete has a vastly superior memory for detail than I do. And inevitably throughout this conversation, Pete is going to correct me. So whatever Pete says is true, 
but whatever I say is also true. It's just a version of the story, if that makes sense. I, don't, I actually don't know if that's true. But. See, already out the gate, that you know, he he remembers your memory differently. Yeah. I mean, I think when we're talking about like our shared experiences, there's going to be some difference. Oh, yeah. like, well, see, that's what we we live for. That we live for that. Oh man, um, I mean, we we did so much, and it's so hard. Like it 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 is absolutely impossible for me to like remember even where we played. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I'll start out with Gabe. What was your early experience with music, and like, how did you first? get into music? Was it through your parents, through friends, through relatives? What was, yeah, what was your early introduction? I mean, the early introduction, for sure, my parents, they were both in the Bay Area in the 60s. My mom was at Cal Berkeley. My dad hitchhiked out from New York City and ended up in the hate during the whole hippie scene before the Summer of Love. So he was hanging out with the Diggers and, and you know, going to free concerts in the park where the Diggers would, like, bake bread in coffee tins. So it was this, like, gnarly, cheap-ass, you know, just tube of bre- of free bread. But, you know, it was... it was He was in that scene. Um, so as a kiddo growing up in San Francisco, the 60s legacy looms pretty large. And... Um, my dad and mom had a record collection, had Santana and Hendrix and Beatles and and lots of, of pretty whack stuff as well. Jimmy Buffett and Dire Straits. And, you know, there was a handful of tapes that were just in the car all the time, Talking Heads, uh, t- Dire Straits, Paul Simon, Graceland. So I think like a lot of my early musical formation was not, you know, it was, it was um, post-hippie popular music in some ways. But also radio, um, you know, Live 105 was this, what they called a modern rock radio station. And I had a half brother who was about seven years older, and he kind of turned me on to New Wave. And a lot of the stuff that got played on that radio station, it was very local and very niche in some ways. But it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't KFOG, which was the s- sort of classic rock station. It was really actually about contemporary modern pop music. Um, so I was hearing things like the Sugar Cubes and Front 242 and 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 nerding out on that stuff because that was what was on the radio. So definitely like the earliest formation of music in some ways was just what what was popular, but what was also accessible very regionally. Did you play an instrument? Did you like play an instrument in school or like learn? I like... tried. <laughs> I tried. I really wanted to play flute when I was wow. a little kid. Wow. Oh, that's, yeah. that's a rare one for like a young I'll be man. Straight you know? up, that's great. It was Peter and the Wolf. As a kid, I just thought that shit slapped and I was really excited to play flute. And I kid you not, I, I took music lessons. My folks didn't have a ton of cash, but they bought me a flute and I I sat there reading sight reading learning how to play flute but i could not um make a sound yeah i I couldn't get the embouchure right i can't whistle and the Ah. only only instruction anyone could ever give me was was you know well it's just like whistling i'm like yeah i can't whistle (laughs) you gotta take whistle lessons first (laughs) but needless to say i spent months and months and months and i remember my teacher standing over my shoulder watching me play the flute without making a sound (laughs) and she leans over and she goes 
you know, you're actually doing it. Like you can actually sight read. Cause I was still trying. I just assumed at some point it would just happen and it didn't. And so then I, you know, I, that was heartbreaking. I gave it up and, um, you know, and I would say like, it really wasn't until, you know, I, I had to put this, like I was, I started getting into guitar music around high school or late junior high and my older brother who had handed me all of this like orchestral maneuvers in the dark and men without hats and like you know new, new way music or whatever um he, his cassettes he then started handing me down his metal stuff because he went away to college at UC Santa Cruz and got really into metal and so all of a sudden i was getting you know um anthrax and and acdc and uh megadeth and stuff like that and I was like, okay, I mean, this is at least like more the sound I'm really excited about. And so I figured maybe I'll, I'll start playing guitar. I mean, it had to have been Nirvana that did it for me because I knew that I liked heavy music and I knew that I liked guitar music, but I really couldn't relate to ACDC at all. <laughs> At all. And then I remember coming home, you know, it probably was 1992 or something, and coming home from high school, turning on MTV, and in the middle of the afternoon, seeing, uh, seeing, hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit, and just, just like the world blew up for me. And I was like, oh, there's music that is as heavy as this metal shit that my brother's into, but on on an emotional level, I can relate to this. And on a personal level, I was just like, I think I'm like those guys, you know, like they're kind of nerds and they're kind of queer and they're they're kind of like taking the piss on everyone, like not just, you know, like everyone. And I felt like this is something else, like this is my music. And so in very short order, I I decided I was going to learn how to play guitar. How quickly did you start playing music or like start a band or something? I, I'm sure you were in a punk bands, whatever, uh, from the get-go. Okay, air, air, scare quote punk bands. You know, my folks were burned by buying me this flute that I never learned how to play. So when I wanted to get an electric guitar, they're like, well, why don't you play your dad's um, nylon string folk guitar first? You know, and my dad, when he was like a teenager in the village, so he's from New York before coming out east or out west, he actually wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be Bob Dylan. I've heard a cassette tape of him playing some songs he wrote when he was like 16. And it's the worst, worst <laughs> Bob Dylan impersonation I've ever heard in my life. So, yeah, so I got so he, he gave me the guitar and I tried, you know, learning how to play from a book. And uh, and I have to say, like, you know, I, I really struggled. Like I, I was learning chords and scales really slowly. I had a best friend who was also learning. And it was okay. You know, I kind of wanted to be like Neil Young. That was, I think, what I was going for. And I I would spend like an hour trying to learn scales, trying to learn chords and, and rehearsing songs. And then once I'd done that, I would give myself permission to just fuck around. And I, I was, like I said, I was into Nirvana. So I was like, well, how do I make this nylon string guitar sound like Nirvana? Okay, well, I'll put pieces of paper in the strings or I'll like put paper clips on it. <laughs> I literally just wanted it to sound like it was distorted. And I was like, well, how do I make that it's like, effect? Yeah, it's like the like, putting the uh, <laughs> screwdriver through the speaker cone like moment. Yeah, totally. Oh, amazing. So I was doing this as a, uh, and I was doing this and I, I finally, like after committing long enough to the guitar, my folks got me a real cheap electric guitar from 
Sears or wherever. And, you know, what I found was that I was way more interested in the sound of feedback than I was in learning how to shred. And all of my high school buddies who were musicians were into Yngwie Malmsteen. And, like, they were just, like, weird weird guitar kids. Like, they wanted to be, like, Jimmy or Frank Zappa. I mean, you know... I was like not hating on it, but I also really, at the end of the day, was way more excited about learning about feedback, figuring out the weird sounds I could make, putting things onto my guitar. And so then I started a band with a friend that was supposed to be kind of like an industrial music project, but we had like a Casio keyboard for drums that we ran through a guitar amp. And, you know, we both played guitar, so he just like tuned his guitar really low so it could be a bass. <laughs> and then I would literally, we had a song where I literally just played feedback the entire song. And my friends saw this punk, this band play. And I thought this was a punk band because I read about punk before I ever really saw a punk band. And when I read about punk, it was like, you know, you do your own thing. You don't sound like other people. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to play your instrument. I was like, okay, all the boxes are checked for me. And we play and my friends are like, huh, that band's weird. And we're like, yeah. They're like, yeah, it sort of reminds us of Sonic Youth. I'm like, who's Sonic Youth? And they're like, oh, they're this band where they've... And they were like sneering at this point. They're like, they're this band that puts like a like a, a, a blender up to their guitar. And I just remember my eyes widening and just thinking, there's a band that does this? And... And so once I figured out also like the 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 Sonic Youth connection to Nirvana, it just, you know, like it really just like was a spiral out into everything else from like Masana to, you know, John Coltrane to like, you know, everything, everything else I got into, even Fugazi, like it just it came out of Nirvana. That was the gateway. And the one anecdote that I think is relevant con- listening back to some of your other shows and thinking about like what is different about then versus now and and also just thinking about how like it wasn't just about style or or scenes or whatever that made me interested in certain musics it was way more about a social world that i wanted to be a part of and you know in my when my friends were into these kind of heavy metal bands and some of them were into some industrial music bands um you know we were teenagers so we listened to whatever we could have get our hands on uh when lollapalooza came to town we went because it was like, I think, I don't remember the exactly, but I think it was probably Red Hot Chili Peppers, Jesus Mary Chain playing at like two in the afternoon in the blazing sun. There was not enough st- smoke machine for that show. I, in hindsight, I'm like, that's actually the only band I really regret that I did. You know, like, I wish I could go and see again. Um, but, you know, the Pearl Jam probably played. I can't remember everyone that was on. It was the second year of the of the festival. But what I remember is, like, all day I was in the pit and I was having a great time. I'm this little guy jumping around in the pit, but I'm, having, I'm doing fine. And then as the sun is setting, they start setting the stage. And it is every single instrument, every single piece of hardware is covered with bones. And, like, when the, when the sun is finally properly set... Ministry comes out, and I'd never heard them or heard of them. Like, I think I'd heard uh, Every Day is Halloween or something on the radio, but I didn't know anything about what they were doing at this point. And they played Stigmata. And, you know, the pit suddenly went from being a bunch of scrappy teenagers like me to being people Pete's height, like, you know, fairly significantly taller than me, uh, covered in in leather and spikes and tattoos and piercings. And I just got tossed around like a rag in the pit. 
And I remember this moment stepping out of the pit and being kind of amazed because I realized, wait, I've been here all day. Where have these people been? And then I had a moment of pause and I was like, wait a second, where do these people go when they're not here? Because they're all dressed so intensely. They all look so freakish. They have tattoos on their faces. They're, they've got fucked up haircuts. And it was like the first moment that I realized there is such a thing as the underground. And that is like literally when I became obsessed with trying to find it. And that's how actually how I got into punk, I think more than anything, is I was like, there is a secret world. There's a secret world that is not given to you through MTV or through, you know, the BMG record uh, mail order or through the, the you know, the weekly newspapers. It's how do they find each other? Where do they meet up? What do they do when they're not at a show? And I became fucking obsessed. And I and that is literally what drew me into punk. Well, I think that's a good like crossover point to sort of restart then with with you, Pete. Um, yeah, what was the what was your intro as a young person to music, and how did you come to like know that's what you liked? You know, both of my parents are like kind of like crunchy earth scientist types. <laughs> we didn't. There weren't a lot of records. Like they would listen to like NPR classical. That's kind of like it. Um, we had a piano in the house. I took piano lessons and like saxophone lessons for a minute, but didn't go anywhere. The first record I bought myself was Run DMC Raising Hell. And up, in, up until Nirvana, basically, I only listened to hip hop. So it was like basically, you know, Run DMC leads into, you know, Public Enemy, NWA, you know, Black Sheep, Das Effects, like uh, De La Soul. You know, I only listen to hip hop. And, you know, I'm growing up in like small town Oregon. So I, I grew up in Corvallis, which is like Oregon State is. So it's like, you know, 35, 40,000 people. And like, it, it's a funny little town because it's like very middle class um, and like, but like intellectual. So it's like, university and then there's like there was like uh, an hp there a hewlett packard so like it was like a lot of engineers um so, and like a lot of the the school is like really like very it's like agriculture and engineering basically so like um a lot of like my friends parents were farmers but they were sort of like more like back to the land like hippie farmers so like that that was kind of like the what I grew up in like it was a small town like it's got a little like downtown there were record stores and like you know there was some like stuff happening when I was growing up but it was really like very hippy dippy like intellectual but like I I really only listen to hip hop like I only listen to rap music some of my friends had older brothers or like you know like I had babysitters that had, like, some funny, like, music connections. And a lot of my, like, exposure to, like, underground culture was sort of through, like, hanging out at, like, houses where people were watching, like, skate videos, like, Bones Brigade and stuff like that, you know? 
so like I knew about hardcore. I had this idea about a counterculture like very early on, but I didn't know how to access it um, beyond like UMTV raps, which was like a great sort of like gateway into like anything else. You know, I mean, it, the the music I was getting into was definitely like mainstream in terms of the routes that it was like disseminating into the world through. But in both cases, it's like not music. <laughs> like there is, there is like a lot of discourse around all this stuff that was really just sort of like, this is not. I was just going to say that that's funny. Like, you know, I think you mentioned like public enemy too, like, you know, bomb squad, like production stuff. That's like an interesting uh, sort of like path into like, maybe unconsciously or consciously like getting into like electronic music and you know electronic music production cut up it's tape stuff you know like whatever like that's like have you ever thought about that being like a important early exposure to that type of like cut up whatever electronic music absolutely i mean you know i i, I did like a collaboration with beans not too long I think that was in like 2013. Like, man, like this is something that's part of my like musical DNA from like childhood that, you know, I never really thought I would tap into in a more serious way. But it was really cool, like chatting with him. And we were just like talking about like Mantronics production, you know, and like, you know, and the bomb squad. And like we were like sending each other videos of like live public enemy, you know, and like as a live band, they had this energy to them that was so intense. Did you see them live ever? No, I never saw them live, but like I said, I saw footage of them and it reminds me, it gives me like the energy of being a, like a punk show where it's like really out of control. You know? All that music was super intense. And then like, I did not listen to any like rock music until, you know, sort of like grunge hit. And then there was also like Nine Inch Nails and all these other things that were sort of like lumped in with that, that were also like sort of industrial, you know, things like that. Um, and I started catching on to some of that stuff through watching like 120 Minutes. Um, but like, I also found out about this TV show. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm probably watching this when I'm like 12, 13 that's on like Sunday nights on like this channel that had been like a local network that was like kind of transitioning being into like Fox. So I would like watch the Simpsons, you know, like Ben Stiller show. And then after that, it would be this show called Bohemia after dark. That was a like music videos, video art, things like that, that I figured out later was done by Mike Lastra from Smegma. Wow, that's some lo local uh, Oregon weirdness. Yeah, so it was like this this network from Portland that had, you know, this like Mike Lastrick curated like music show, basically. Um, and they would have like interviews with like Russ Myers, John Waters and stuff like that. There was like footage of like Butthole Surfers playing live like in the 80s, you know, that Mike filmed in Portland. And it also sort of introduced me to some, like, more local acts. And then the thing that really sort of, like, pushed me over the edge was, like, seeing footage of Boredoms and, like, Harry Pussy and Masana on 120 Minutes. Oh, man, 100%. And, 
and I was like, oh, I need to I need to check more out by this band, The Boredoms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, Boredoms was the thing that like kind of pushed me to not go to like the chain record store and go to like this more local used record store called Happy Trails in my hometown. And like, I was so intimidated going in there, but they had they had boredom CDs and like. I just started going there with my buddies and we would like sort of poke around and see like what was cheap, what was local. And, um, you know, just in a matter of like maybe a year, I went from being like, oh, like I'm kind of like feeling this alternative thing to just being like, oh, there's co-rock stars. Like, you know, I blind bought like a copy of Unwound New Plastic Ideas, you know, like there was just all this stuff that was like happening close to us or close to me where like, I could access it pretty easily through this record store, you know, and it just started opening up these doors for me. And I had a few high school buddies that I ended up playing music with, you know, started my first band with some of these guys. And like, we all really got, like, I got more into like Gravity Records, Rock Stars than they did, but we all got into like the whole like slap a ham, like grindcore scene, like very intensely. And like I, I only went to high school like half time because I was I was like kind of I was kind of ahead of of a lot of folks like credits wise. Um, so I worked part time most of most of high school working in like uh, the Oregon State Library. So I bought a car and would just like go up to Portland and like check out shows a lot like on the weekends. I mean, I got my first job when I, I had my first job, I think when I was like 13 and went out and like got a bass with all the money I earned from like, I, I, yeah, I just wanted to play in punk bands. I like, uh, I guess it must've been like 14 or 15 maybe, but I, I got the bass and I was like, oh, I want to sound like God hit silo. <laughs> When I first moved to Portland, there was this new venue, 17 Nautical Miles, that was run by Todd P. My hardcore band that I was in called Murder, we played at 17 Nautical Miles like every week. <laughs> five minute, five minute set, just like in and out, done. Are there recordings of Murder? Yeah, we did a split seven inch with this band called uh, The Nervous System. You should also describe Murder, because I feel like Murder is like a really important, like, it's a transition, right? It's a transition from... Yeah, I mean, so like, I I did Murder, and then I, I, I met a bunch of people through doing that and ended up in this band that was probably my first, like, really serious band that got anything done. But uh, uh, yeah, Murder was sort of more like... Um, it was definitely like in the um, tradition of like Gravity Records, you know, like very sort of like chaotic hardcore. But through that band, I ended up meeting this dude, Evan Burden, who probably like the best technical musician I've ever worked with. 
So it, basically, I'm in this band, and everybody is like older than me. Like I wasn't even 21. <laughs> so I like you know we'd practice like three or four days a week, and like it was music that was like very inspired by like Loop and like. Evan was obsessed with Ligeti, so it was, like, very, like, inspired by minimalist classical, but it was, like, really epic, like, rock songs. Everything would be, like, 12 minutes long. Like, yeah. So, I guess that is kind of kind of gets, at least in my life, up to where, like, Gabe and I start, like, meeting, basically. So, you guys met there. Were you guys both living up there? Yeah, what's the story of that? So, Gabe and I... We were in the orbit of each other for a long time. So a friend of mine from Portland that I met going to shows at um, O'Hell went to Stanford and had a radio show at Stanford and introduced me to this lady, Deborah, who I'm still buddies with, um, who was like doing a radio show and was like involved in like the hardcore scene down there and was also like involved in Riot Girl and stuff like that. And she was friends with this lady, Cece, who I met, and she ended up being in a band with Gabe and George Chen. Oh, funny. But, oh, great. Yeah. But before that, I guess Gabe saw this band that I was in with one of my roommates at the time, this dude, Joel, and Paul Dickow from Strategy called The Cold War. There was a long time where I was just constantly having like weird one-off bands. And I did this band with Joel and Paul that was about this like one specific news event. We like wrote, you know, four punk songs about like this thing and we tracked it through like the news cycle. And then when, like, when it was out of the news cycle, the band was over and we got asked to play a reunion show with the red scare. And, and like, because of, because of the band, like everything was super, just like, let's just throw it together. Like, Whatever. And Gabe was at that show. Yeah, I was just on a road trip to see what Portland was about. And we found out there was a venue, like a you know DIY space called 17 Nautical Miles, run by Todd P. And I think we knew the Red Scare, so that's why we went to the show, I'm pretty sure. But uh, I saw Pete's band play, and I just... You know, like I said earlier, I read about punk before I ever actually went to punk shows or really understood what punk was. And so I had this impression about what it was supposed to do, not necessarily what it was supposed to sound like. And what it was supposed to do is make you want to start a band. And it was make it was supposed to tell you, oh, you could do this. And I remember seeing Pete's band and being like, this band is fucked up. It's fast. It's noisy. It's sloppy. I could be in a band like that. And it was basically, if they could do this, I could do this. And... <laughs> and George and I had been talking about like we you know we'd been kind of we were both into similar music we'd been talking about starting a noise band we we started this band called Boxleitner named after Bruce Boxleitner and uh it was started off just being him and me and we just it was just microphone and drums and lots of looping and pedals and noise it was terrible you know we kept on saying like we want to be in a band that is like kind of like the boredoms but also we both love all of this gravity records stuff like maybe we could combine it somehow and in a kind of weird like callback to the you know to the the last episode i heard on your on this podcast we were really into andy kaufman and so we really wanted to somehow figure out how we, could we make a band that was like the emo hardcore version of an andy kaufman bit and 
And uh, after I saw Pete's, after I saw the Cold War, I came back and I was like, George, we gotta, we gotta do this. I saw this band; it was great. Let's do this thing. And it ended up being this weird mix of like, it was like no wave, and in this particular moment in the Bay Area where a kind of neo-no-wave scene was emerging and, you know, somewhat influenced by what was happening in Providence and Chicago, but really its own thing. So you would see, like, Kid 606 or Blectum and Blectum playing with, num- you know, Numbers or, um, you know, or Total Shutdown or one of, you know, some of these bands. I mean, yeah, like, there's a bit of an overlap in the scenes around that time, but, like, they were, like, they were distinctive scenes of the sort of more, like, left-field dance yeah. music would you consider that i guess or and then like the more well, diy yeah. punk stuff but they were like overlapping well i mean that's like men's recovery project era also yeah like, they were like of. sort of separate and then they weren't exactly and this was what was confusing like you know this is true i think of a lot of music scenes like if you base it on genre it seems like they're worlds apart but if you base it on who's drinking together there's a lot of overlap or who's dating you know like um Yeah, but that, you know, but honestly, like, I really, you know, I really felt this frustration because I wanted my music to be as as free and radical and experimental, which I felt like was in the in line with my my goals for music, but also for life. And as as I felt like the music was around me in this electronic music scene that was happening, you know, turn of the century, San Francisco. But I wanted to be pummeled with bodies and sweat the way I felt at a Burmese show. And I couldn't find those two things together. And so I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And and I think this was like this was like part of my motivation for leaving the Bay. It was also the first dot com disaster was happening, so rent was absurd. I was like living in a living room with four other people in a in an apartment with six or seven people, and and like you know I was working full time, and I was just like this isn't what the life I want. Like this isn't what I want to be doing. So then from there, from there, um, Owen from Cassiotone for the Painfully Alone <laughs> walks nice. over to me at a show and is like Gabriel. I'm moving to Portland. You should come. And I'm like, when are you going? And he's like, we're leaving in, in two months. I'm like, okay, I'm going to Portland. Like, I decided in that moment. Well, yeah. Gabe and I had met yes. when, when Boxleitner was on tour. They played at Todd Peace House, which is like a half a block away from 17 nautical miles. <laughs> I can't remember why it was happening at Todd's I'll t- house. I'll tell you why it was happening at Todd's house. Because we thought it would be, again, Andy Kaufman, we thought it would be hilarious to book a tour for the first week after Y2K. So we were in the Bay Area. <laughs> we were in the Bay Area, and everyone was obsessed with Y2K, and everyone was like, the world's going to end, planes are falling from the sky, the computers aren't going to work. And we're like, we should book a tour. <laughs> For, for January 1st. And I think our second show was in Portland. It was like January 2nd. And so I think Todd was just like, no one's going to come to the show. It's snowing or, and, or rainy or miserable weather. Like, whatever. I'll book a show as a favor to George. Because George ran Zum and, and put on tons of shows for bands. Like, George was a, a mensch and deserved a show, right? We were on tour with Cassiotone for the Painfully Alone and Jim Yoshi Pileup which is like a shoegazy post-rock band. And uh, I don't even know if we played with a local band. Pete, do you remember? I don't think so. I don't think so. We <laughs> we were like silk screening t-shirts in the kitchen. It was fucking freezing. But Pete was there. And and we just like hit it off. We just shot the shit, enjoyed each other's I, I, company. 
I had met George and Cece before, and I was like, oh, Gabe, like, yeah. <laughs> I've heard about you. Rumor got up to Pete that I was moving up to Portland, and this would have been 2001, like uh, spring 2001 or something. And Pete sends me an email, and he says, hey, I heard you're coming to Portland. Do you think we could get a show to get a band together in time to play the show in a month? <laughs> I wish I still had this email, but Yahoo trashed it. I don't know where it is. Um, and I was just like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> but we can definitely start a band together. Cause I <laughs> and so I moved up there. And I think like within a week, we were like working out what our band was going to be. And Gabe was living in this pink house with Owen, and Owen Ashworth and Cass McCombs. What yeah. the hell is crazy overlap? <laughs> wow. I know, I know. Like I said, like who you hang who you end up living with, hanging out with, who you're friends with doesn't always show up in the in the, in the, in the written playlist. history. Yeah, that's why we do, that's yeah. why we do these things, man. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah, so we started rehearsing and we actually like rehearsed for a long time because I we got a whole bunch of new gear. I mean, we we took at least 6 months before going public with it. And I mean, part of it is that we were trying to figure out what it was that we were doing like not just technically but also conceptually like both of us really wanted to make this music that was like visceral and physical but also really weird and fucked up and we were like starting to like listen to things like the you know the the more like electro influence wolf eyes and metalux records and so i mean some of it was just that like we were really pushing ourselves to try something risky and different and i think also, Pete was a pretty well-known and established person in the music scene and in the community. And so it felt like a little bit of pressure. Like, if we're going to do this, we want to try and be ready. We don't want to, we don't want to just show like a work in progress. We want to show something that like, that like immediately kind of pushes people's buttons. But then our first show was terrible. I, oh no, it was the worst. I mean, we were playing with all these great bands. I think it was Get Hustle, Monitor Bats, which was Brace Payne's band. Who else was on that? Do you remember? Nice. Chromatics. Chromatics. That's right. When they were still in Seattle. And so it was like a big show for our little scene. Um, What I remember is that after playing, I put down, I put away our gear. I left the building and I walked for like two miles by myself. And I was pretty sure I was going to give up music for the rest of my life. I was like, this is the most humiliating thing I've ever experienced. I will never play music again. Yeah, it was bad. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it? What, what, what? Okay. Well, so first of all, like, you know, I know, um, you know, how you guys clearly, you know, evolved over the course of your, you know, uh, whatever, 10, almost 10 years as a band. And like, but I'm curious of like, what, you know, how would you describe the early, version and then that going into what was that first show like and how did it fail in relation to that i think we just had big i think we just had really big ambitions and and we were working it out in a basement and there's some things that you really don't know until it's in public you know until someone else is experiencing it and even if they don't say anything just the feeling of oh that thing that we never actually worked out in rehearsal or in the you know that that problem that we kept on coming up that we never like nailed down it just came up and now i really see why it's a problem and what and it, and and yeah it just you know we just weren't ready but there, but you're never ready you have to you have to be willing to fail in public if you're going to try something hard absolutely did you guys have um 
you know, for this very first first show, first iteration of the band or whatever, or just the beginning of it, like, did you guys have, like, songs that you would play? Yeah, it started out more like songs. And, like, if you hear our first split with John Weiss, it's sort of, like, more song-based. But we ended up meeting this group of people who were all sort of um, very dedicated improvisers working in this space of very minimal music. And they lived in our neighborhood. We eventually, like after about a year of the band, we ended up living in the same house together and they were just a couple blocks away from us. And we would go like play with these people who were like, really excellent improvisers like like brian eubanks and, oh i know brian uh, i know brian very well yeah totally he's a good friend yeah jp jenkins who's in, still in portland who was in la for a while um mark Kaler, joe foster <laughs> we were literally neighbors and we would all like get together and play together you know like, and we they were really generous and open to people trying things and the fact that we wanted to hang out and try to experiment with them, they were down. And I think that really changed how we listened, how we thought about composing. They were people who really opened up, I think, our ears towards like a different kind of listening. And because of that, I think that really transformed how we played with each other. How early into the the band was that? Like, what was that? 2001, 2002 or something? That's more like 2002, 2003. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had you guys started... um... Collective Jerk by that point. I mean, Jerk, we started like pretty much right as we were starting the band with Eric Mast. And we were just mostly putting out CDRs by people like around us, you know? And one of those projects that we put out a lot of stuff for was this project God that was Brian Eubanks and this dude Leif, who is, I, I think he's totally out of music now, but it's like, and they were like absolute legends. So like Brian and Leif went from being like a sax player and a drummer. To Brian was basically p- playing a bunch of exposed circuit boards and doing like live circuit bending. And Leif was mostly playing um, turntables and records, but with like um, a parametric EQ and like no belt to like press the records. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just remembering Leif biting the record. <laughs> Yeah, so Gabe and I were at this show that God was playing, and Leif was, like, playing his turntable, and he leans over and starts binding a record, and this dude in the like who was watching the show just stands up and throws up his hands like, that's it, this is too much, and just, like, leads. I mean, but this is, this is why we kicked it with these people, is because... They were extreme. I mean, you can, I think at this point we've established that Pete and I listened pretty broadly, that, that we're not super concerned with being like narrowly focused on a genre or a scene. But what it ki- came down to over and over again, and this is really the whole, what, the main story of Collective Jerk is like we were interested in people who were pushing an outer limit. And it didn't entirely matter if it was more melodic and poppy, if it was, you know, harsh noise, if it was metal, if it was something, it just needed to be something that was that was on the outer limit of what people are doing. And it needed to become from like a sort of, I think the term is sui generi. Is that right? Like the, like, like this sort of, it had to be born out of that person's own deep weirdness. And, and if it, if it came out of their own individual or collective deep weirdness, we, I think we were pretty excited to like 
do things with those people. There were a lot of weird people in Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no shit. like on the west coast until 2004 and like collective jerk that started you know that was around for a couple of years when we were mostly just like repping portland stuff and then like gabe and i both like did these kind of like music local music events around portland that were kind of like you know here's like 12 bands in a day that are all from around here that all like could play more shows with each other but don't you know So, like, we would just have these, like, little, like, mini festivals that would just be, like, a bunch of cool bands that do all sorts of different stuff. And Narnak came out to one of them and ended up, like, offering record deals to, like, a handful of bands, which they offered us to do something, which led to our first record, which is one where we're still in Portland, but then kind of, like, in the middle of all this, like... I'm moving to the Bay for the first time. Gabe's moving back to the Bay. And it, it was like kind of so I could like pursue this relationship with, uh, with Liz Harris. We, we end up like recording the record and having it come out right after we get to the Bay. It was supposed to come out in time for our tour, but um, we end up doing this full, like um, it ended up being like a, a full U.S. tour to basically, like, move us. And I, I don't know how much it is still true for bands that do tour in the ways that we did back in the day. I know that, you know, bands do still to some extent. But, like, there was a pretty big gap between the East and West Coast. I mean, what it comes down to is is there were two main obstacles for a band in Portland. One was the huge distances, right? Even just to get to San Francisco, you had to go 12 hours if you were lucky, Right. And and to get to anywhere on the East Coast or the, even the Midwest, right? Like there was scenes in Ohio and Michigan. Um, there was lots of great places to play, but to get there took so much effort. And that also meant that to get from those that side of the country to us took a lot of effort. And so things on the one hand that meant that um, that things could kind of percolate in Portland without that constant pressure of what is happening in New York or what's happening in LA. And that's part of why I think Portland itself had an amazing scene, but also why bands that were pretty different than each other were willing to like play and form a scene around just being in relationships together. Um, Just, you know, it's just, it was almost like a really big small town in that way. The other side, other issues that we didn't really have a label that represented us in the same way that like Trouble Man or Discord or, you know, pick your pick your your label represented a particular region or a particular scene. So, you know, on some level, like we really built those relationships or that scene from the ground up because we didn't have immediate access to the Ann Arbor, Detroit scene. We didn't have immediate access to the Fort Thunder scene. And oftentimes when we'd show up at a place that already had a pretty established scene, 
it wasn't a great show. Like it took a long time to for break us to build. into that sort of like, there's always yeah. kind of provincialism and like, Oh yeah. And we've got our thing. We don't need you. What we found though, was places that often got overlooked ended up being some of the most exciting towns to play in. Sacramento. Sacramento. St. Louis. A hundred percent. Iowa city. But yeah, like some of these towns just to kind of maybe give us some long-term perspective. We showed up in St. Louis the first time. And the uh, it was a house show, and Ghost Ice was putting on the show. We we discovered it was his parents' house in this like uh, bizarre housing project, gated community. Every house looks the same. We show up. We were late because we were late, and we were just had trouble finding it. It was like an early in the day show. There's a barbecue. His mom is barbecuing, or his dad is barbecuing. His mom is serving cocktails, and. And there's a guy in a, like, full tuxedo with a saxophone looking really anxious. And as soon as we show up, they're, the, they're like, you guys, we got to start the show. We've been waiting for you. And the first opener has to go play a wedding. <laughs> so we, without even unloading our stuff, we just go down into the basement. And this guy does a blistering fire music sax solo for, like, 20 minutes. Probably Dave Stone. It was totally Dave Stone. It was Dave Stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. So, yeah, he, he plays and blows us away and is gone. I think he literally like stops playing runs up shakes our hands he's like i'm so sorry i have to leave before you're set i've got to go play a wedding the next band is i don't remember who what they were called but they were like i think two guys 83 they're covered in mud or like body paint they're mostly naked they're playing like logs but you know at some point mom comes into the basement to see if we need snacks or drinks and and jeremy's like mom i told you not to come in here (laughs) and so she embarrassingly closes the door i don't know if she noticed that there were three naked men in the room playing logs ghost dice plays and ghost dice was i don't know if anyone ever remembers but jeremy was so good he never so put anything good. out. He was, he was like, I, I run, I have talked to so many people about Jeremy and his music, and everybody's like, oh man, he was really good. And you know, I'll just I'll just say, like, that was our first show in St. Louis. You know, we had a great time. We played to 20 people in the basement. You know, it was no big deal. But we kept on coming back to St. Louis, and it seemed to matter to people that we kept on coming back. And honestly, like, we eventually got good shows in New York City and in Chicago. Like, we built it, we we worked our way up to that point where we could play a decent show in those towns. But that show in St. Louis was as good as any show we played anywhere else in the country. You know, our second U.S. tour, we were opening up for Shushu. Like, we initially met because Shushu was on their first West Coast tour, and George Chen was traveling with them because George's sister was in the band. (laughs) So they roll up to Portland, and they're like, oh, George knows Pete. They hit me up, and they end up, like, crashing at my apartment because they were, like, sleepy. (laughs) (laughs) We were all buddies. We, like, played – We like, Jamie lived in Seattle for a little bit, and we, like – did some tracking on Fabulous Muscles. And then he asked us to like tour with him and we were stoked. So we were, we were, you know, a, a little bit of a stretch for a lot of the people coming out to the shows. One of the shows that we played was in Fargo and it was like at this brewery, but was an all ages show. And at this point it was just us and Shushu, I think. And for some reason, there was a great PA. (laughs) And we just rolled in and, like, played, and it sounded good. And, like, kids were just, like, confused. They were like, what was that? What were you doing? Like, I don't understand. (laughs) 
So first show in Fargo, we're playing to like 20 kids and like none of them knew what they were getting into, but like five of them, like their world totally changed that night. (laughs) So the next time we come back, we play and like nobody comes out, but there's an opening band that's from Fargo. It's like a bunch of people playing noise. So it was like, it was just sort of like, you know, that thing where, you know, you see that influence. Yeah. And, and, you know, like our first tour, we booked entirely ourselves. So it was like, okay, like we need to get from point A to point B. How do we like, like, where do we stop? You know, like, can we stop in Missoula, Montana? We like played a bunch of little small towns. (laughs) Even, even once we had like kind of established our circuit, we as a kind of principle or rule, always made sure we played somewhere we hadn't played before, you know? And so even on our last, you know, with our last tour of Malthus, and we still ended up probably playing some places in the Southeast that we'd never played before, you know, just because. Like, we needed to be reach out to other people. And also, it was for our own benefit. We just didn't want to get stuck or bored or calcified. And we agreed to do things that a lot of people wouldn't agree to, we were curious. I think we were just willing to take a chance. Like, we don't know if this is actually going to work, but why not? We, One of my favorite examples of that is we had a, a show booked at, I forget the name of it, if it's the Bug Jar in Rochester, New York. So Pango had booked the show. We were on the bill with Pango. And then they get in touch with us and they're like, look, you got the show first. We're going to honor that. But we have to be honest, DOA and the Dickies are playing, and this would be a really good show for us. And Pete and I were like, well, can we just open? So we didn't even set up, you know, we rarely set up on stage back then, and and we didn't set up on stage. We set up, I feel like we set up, like, in the, like, cafe, I mean, I, or, like, on the floor in front of the stage. Maybe 10 people actually watched us. It was a lot of older punks, and, you know, no one was there for us except for Pingo. But this one guy, and I forget the shirt. I wish I could remember the shirt. I mean, he's wearing like a, a clash shirt or something, you know, or subhumans. I forget. But he's an old, he was like an older punk who probably had seen DOA's first tour. And he comes running up to us and he's like, what, 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 what do you call that? I mean, do, what do you call that? I'm like, we, well, we call it noise. He's like, really? You call it, really? You're not joking? You call it noise? I'm like, well, I mean, I think of it as punk. He's like, you do. Because it seemed like punk to me, but it wasn't punk. And he was so fucking excited. And I was just like, that's worth it. Yes. Amazing. So, yeah. So, you know, I don't know if we went to Europe, like, while we were working on Psychic, because we mostly were playing pieces from that for the first time. But basically, we got an invitation to go play this festival in Belgium um, called Dramarama. Yeah. This is, like, I think one of the most important moments in our trajectory, and it was a festival that was curated by this Belgian artist, Jelle Krama. And Jelle put together this whole multiple-day festival that was like kites. There was Glamorous Pat from Portland. Extreme Animals. There was some other European bands. I'm, I'm struggling to remember who else was on that bill. Fat Worm of Error. I right. was literally about to say Fat yes. Worm was like the pinnacle of oh, they that, <laughs> one of my favorite bands ever. I mean, so for us, the thing is, we went out there and we were like, all these people are cool. We we have a lot of, of connections already. They're like, we were aware of, of some of these groups having either played together or just having, you know, bought their stuff or we just had heard about them. But I don't think we saw ourselves as doing the same thing. 
And this festival put us in this contrast to everything else that was happening in music in this weird way that it made us, I think, really recognize like, oh, there is something happening. You know, but I think I think that this was really it was that that moment where someone outside of the scene was able to look across and see that there was something happening. And then to get that affirmation from, you know, from people who, again, as Americans, we were just not used to being treated as artists. We were at if we were lucky, we were treated as a real band. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I think it was a really huge leap for us to have the opportunity even just to go to Europe. But then it also solidified friendships that were forming through like tape trading, CDR trading, um, you know, and, and we ended up going back to Europe a lot. We had some very weird tours in, in Europe and like a lot of them were, would be like a bunch of really, really good shows. And then a lot of weird shows, but there was this dude who was kind of like a, a really big fan of yellow swans in like this little corner of Western Germany near like the French border. And it was like our drive between, I think it was Brussels and Torino. So this dude is stoked. He sets up a show for us. I don't think he promoted it. There were no opening bands and it was like at a, at a rec center. It was the only show in Germany that we were playing. So we like roll up, we like, get dinner with him. We like set up sound check. Sounds great. And it's just like him. And then like one other kid who's involved in the show. And, you know, we're kind of like hanging out. We're like, no opening bands. No, nothing. Okay, cool. And we're just, just hanging out, like kind of waiting to start, you know, like whenever it's time in this car, that's like totally full rolls up. And it's like, all these kids who drove hours from like Hamburg or somewhere <laughs> and they get out of the car and they're like, we just drove like three hours to come see you guys. <laughs> so it's like the two kids involved in the show who are like big fans. And then these people who just drove a long way to like see us and it sounded really good in there. So we just like started playing and the vibe was really good. And like, we finished what would be like our normal set. We're kind of like, should we keep playing? They're like, yeah. Well, we were just like, oh, we'll just keep playing until you think you got your money's worth. Don't <laughs> 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 yeah, put all this effort in. We just, we ended up playing for like almost two hours. What it comes down to is like, I think we grew up understanding that what a band does is they, they, they kind of this working class mentality. You get in the van and you tour and you're not entitled to shit you earn it through playing and building relationships and you do it through reciprocating, right? So we were putting on shows for bands when they came through and we were putting out our own music, but we also were putting out music for other people. There was, and it was, you know, to its credit, I think the noise scene in America building off of the years of tape trading and the, the kind of tape exchange that happened with Europe and Japan as well, like really understood that we're not in this for fame and money. We're in this to be obsessed with other people who are obsessed and so let's do, you know, so it really was very horizontal for all of its problems. Also, generally was like willing to accept people doing something weird and fucked up and and valued people just trying things. And and so I think the noise seems super supportive, but also not a lot of bands that sounded like us or did what we did toured the way that we toured.
So like in 2007, we basically were like, mm, time to call it. Yeah. The way I remember it is that Pete and I were not getting along. Like at the end of the day, like, well, tour itself, we weren't enjoying each other's company, right? It was hard work. We were tired. We just knew each other really fucking well. And like, I think I had slept next to Pete more than any other person in my entire life, you know, like <laughs> prior to my my current partner. Like I just was like, I like we have no space from each other. And so I I the way I remember it is I put it to Pete. I was like, Pete, you know, like. I don't think this is fun anymore. I don't think this is working. I don't want to do this if we're not friends. And so I would rather we make a decision to end this, but do it on our terms. And Pete seemed to be in a similar space. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, also like the band, just like we, I, I, a big part of it was if Gabe was moving, it wasn't really clear how the band was going to continue working. So, you know, we basically like, we had a practice space. We agreed to kind of like record a final album ourselves. And we also had like a few remaining obligations. We had this like West coast tour that we were going to do with Sissy SpaceX, a handful of shows that we were going to play in the Midwest. And then like, after we had basically been like, okay, the Midwest is it. We got contacted by Sonar festival and they were like, we want to have you this year. And we're like, oh, we're broken up. But like, what, what is it? And they're like, oh, you know, and it ended up being one week after our last show, the last show that we had scheduled that was going to be in Chicago. And um, I was like, well, you know, we can do this, but it's just going to be one show. You got to pay for both of us to fly out. They're like, no problem, <laughs> of course. But for us, like we'd never had like a fly out show. Um, really good way to go out. We played, it was probably the biggest show we played like period. I think we ended it with this idea of like, if we're going to, if we're going to do this on our terms, what are the things that we need to do to feel good, to not feel like there's unfinished business? And we made a list and, you know, making one last album was very clearly important to both of us, you know, doing a, doing a, doing a few shows, these, these like kind of mini tours felt important to us. We had a couple other releases that were on on the list. Most of them made it out, but at the end of the day, like I think we we like set ourselves up for like uh, about a year of work, maybe or was it less? We recorded everything at the beginning of two thousand eight, and it didn't come out until the end of two thousand ten. Yeah, that's right. So like Gabe moved to Canada, got married, did like the whole immigration thing, started art school without a bachelor's degree, which I I'm like endlessly impressed by. Me like. I basically decided to like continue the path that I had been on working in mental health. It was like time to finally go to college. So like I leave my job, I like start, you know, like doing prerequisites to go to nursing school. I decided to go the medical route. I ended up getting my bachelor's degree, my first bachelor's degree in two years, going to like Portland Community College, Portland State, did all the prerequisites for like nursing school only program I got into was um, at Columbia and the program at Columbia started in June and all the classes that I was taking to finish up my first bachelor's degree ended almost at the beginning of July. So I had to finish like all my classes three weeks early and move across the country. <laughs> so also like during my winter break, the last year that I was at Portland state, I, I, went out to a friend's cabin and like, I'm going to make an album. 
So I like record all this stuff and I had ideas for three different albums. I'm out there for a couple of weeks and I recorded man with potential and, um, uh, I don't rock at all. Like at the same time, man with potential has one of the greatest album covers that we still, I, I still talked about among our friends today of, of, of people in radio lands don't know that Pita has, was known for wearing the uh, what's that? What is what's the what is that hat called? A lot That's, of I just, call I, it I, so the Castro cap, but I don't the think ca- it actually for sure was. the cast. It's like the 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 <laughs> like the grindcore guy. <laughs> That's what I also <laughs> think of it as. Like hat. <laughs> and it's yeah. and the album cover uh, for those who don't know for Man with Potential is a uh, mop with that hat on, which actually just looks like Pete with the, the <laughs> hair that he has. One of, uh, it's uh, one of the cl- most classic album covers. hundred percent. Uh, I wore a pea coat a lot, so I, I like put my pea coat on like a coat hanger, like hung it off the mop, put my hat on top of the mop. Yeah, uh, it has the coat. That's right. It has the coat too. So it literally just looks like <laughs> you, but you can see that the po- the pole going up the middle with the, that's just amazing cover. I, I still really like both of those records, but like, you know, the live show got a little tiring and I, I just kind of got, I just hit a point where I was just like, uh, I don't really love it. And, you know, 2014 rolls around, I finish up my master's degree and I like, am basically ready to start my career prescribing meds. <laughs> <laughs> I was just basically doing a job and like, people are like, yay, like I want to book you for a show. And I'm like, yeah, it's not happening. And then like around when Gabe and I started working on like our archive, we had been talking a bit about like, you know, playing music here and there. And like, basically right before the pandemic hit, Gabe came down to LA. We're like, let's just plug in and like, see how it feels. And we got together and we played and we're like, this sounds like us. Like it fully just sounds like no time has passed, you know? And we kind of both kind of were like, yeah, maybe we should play some shows, but we kept batting this idea around. And then like, I guess it was earlier this year, we got an offer that was like, it was like the window was just too tight. And I was like, yeah, like, like there's no way we can do that. Like there's no way we can like get together and rehearse with like our lives being what they are. But, uh, yeah. So like we ended up getting another offer pretty quickly after that, that was like on a a more workable timescale for us. This was oblivion access and they've like, done a lot of things to accommodate our needs like they're they're like you know booking rehearsal time for us in austin and things like that and you know since then we've been able to get together and rehearse and like that that's been really fun and like the recordings like the rehearsals have been good and you know like basically throughout the sessions like we keep playing better and better with each other and i i think it is like progressing in a direction which is pretty awesome that's exciting because that's it's not just a reunion greatest hits kind of thing but it's a new a new chapter for the project is what it seems which is pretty exciting yeah i mean it'll it'll sound exactly like us and also i think anyone who cares enough to notice the difference will immediately hear that it's it's something new that it really is new sounds and yeah i mean we've (laughs) it sounds like us it's a progression from like where we were but it's like <clears throat> really, it it sounds like us, which was, you know, just, which is fair fair warning. Anyone who just wants to hear going places live, um, there'll be moments maybe where some of that comes through, but you're going to be disappointed if that's what you expect. <laughs> I mean, prepare you for know. disappointment for Come the on. Else <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think, Jack? Any any last questions or yes. any lacunae? 
I think we're done, but I have one last question. Can you tell me the origin of the D in D Yellow Swans? It it's entirely a reference to DYS, the Straight Edge Hardcore. The Straight Edge Hardcore, the Boston the District Department of Youth Services. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Holy shit. Like, I, I have a, I have a slightly DYS. less cool answer. Uh, both Pete and I, I think we're, you know, like low-key fans of, of No Logo. Um, both of us, I think, were interested in fucking with the kind of, like, normative ways in which uh, records get cataloged. We thought it was, you know, we thought, yeah, if we change the D word every single time, people don't know where we go in the, rec- in the, in the record store. I, I was always... You know, I was I was a I was okay into uh, Will Oldham and Palace, but I loved the fact that every album the the record clerk didn't know where to put it. I thought that was smart, and and then I think it also just took on a life of its own. You know, it was like where most of the music is improvised, most of the recordings felt like a different version of the band. So it was kind of fun to just use the D as a, a way of saying like this is a different version of Yellow Swans. Um, and one of the things that it kind of also allowed was for a bit of like just taking the piss out of us, like letting other people have fun. We would when we would play a gig, we would let the person making the flyer choose the D word. If someone was releasing a low key, you know, like a, a, a CDR or a cassette, we usually let them choose the D word. If especially if they like often people really like were passionate, like I really want to call you this. And so, you know, sometimes we had really dumb, dumb D words, but that was part of not taking ourselves so seriously. Yeah, um, I mean, dude, yeah. And I mean, this, this kind of gets back to like when we started the band, it, it was, was like, a serious, a thing we took seriously that we didn't want to be like outwardly serious but became more serious over time. Have you ever used dumb as one yeah. of the D words? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I assume oh, yeah. so, but I can't, yeah, no, no, I can't no. point to dumb, that. <laughs> do your dishes. Dude, where's my car? Yellow swans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you have, do you have like, cause these are, some of these are on for like the flyers or whatever. Right. You must have some sort of archive somewhere of some of these. Cause these would be great to like, unearth. Yeah. like, no, oh actually that would probably be a really good t-shirt would be nothing but the D words. Oh I, yeah. Oh man. There you, I, go. you know, I have an archive of, of almost all the printed matter that exists. I have no doubt that I would not be able to account for every D word that was used. For sure. Well then, but there could be an, uh, a crowd sourcing thing oh, that's too, a good call. You know? so yeah. maybe on this maybe we could say hey uh you know if you booked d yellow swans at some point in their eight years as a band or whatever uh and you have a uh a d word that you use just for that show on the flyer uh please uh come forward and uh send it Actually, us. yes, maybe send it to the Instagram. Yes, uh, send it what? to the the new uh, Yellow Swans Instagram <laughs> that is up. Woo! DM them and D- yeah. it's, D- what's the what's the handle? It's uh, Yellow Swan Sound with like underscores. There you go. You'll be able yeah. to find it. As slide, a, slide into the DMs if you got photos of the flyers. Send it our way. Yes, please. Well, this has been really great, and thank you guys so much for doing this. And yeah. uh, Thanks, I will. I will see you guys in June awesome. at LPR. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good weekend. Enjoy, relax, and uh, talk soon. Sounds Thanks, good. guys. Thanks so much. Thanks to Gabriel and Pete for joining me to speak about their lives in music and beyond. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to 400 Floor wherever you get your podcasts. 
To hear the raw and uncut version of this episode, plus much more bonus material, you can purchase it at 400floor.com. That's the number 400 and the word floor.com. 400 Floor is a podcast produced by Nina Protocol, where two musicians pair up to talk about their roots individually and together and reflect on the communities that shape them. We'll be back in a few weeks with another deep dive. Thanks for listening.